This is the Education Gadfly Show. Highlights and pinnacles in one's career to know we made it, Mike. And, ah, well, you know, this is it. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute of the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Eric Hirsch. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Mike. Yeah, also joining us as always, my co-host, David Griffith. Great to be here as always, Mike. Yeah, so Eric is the founding executive director of Ed Reports. And Eric, uh, you said you're a longtime listener, first time caller. That is very exciting. Great to have you with us. So glad to finally be invited. You know, we <laughs> always look for highlights and pinnacles in one's career to know we made it, Mike. And, uh, well, you know, this is it. here, I mean, does it get better? Put it on the resume or at least your LinkedIn profile, if nothing else. Come on. All right. Well, I think our listeners know, but just in case they don't, Ed Reports is, of course, a fantastic site that stood up a, a few years ago, uh, whose mission is to have educators review instructional materials and rate them uh, so that practitioners can make good decisions around curriculum and instructional materials. And they've got some new information out about how that work is going, both before the pandemic and, and even into the pandemic. We're going to talk about that on Ed Reform Update. All right, Eric, so let's start. Uh, you guys have a new report out about the degree to which these uh, materials out there on the market are high quality and the degree to which school districts are adopting them. I think the data collected for that report was what, mostly pre-pandemic? The latest information, we use a lot of the RAND data from yeah. the American yeah. School Leaders Panel, which was March 2020. So I think we have a good right at the beginning yeah. kind of baseline, um, yeah. but we've been able to look back from prior years. Yeah. So let's talk about that then. You know, Up until the point that this crisis hit, how are we doing in terms of getting folks to use better materials in the classroom? I think from the start, as we've published, we are up to, and I would not have imagined this uh, six years ago when we uh, first launched, with uh, about 850 grade and course level reviews up, wow. about 40% of the math materials we've reviewed meet our criteria for standards alignment and usability. So they got the right content and they got the right supports to help teachers utilize the materials to help kids get college and career ready. And it's a little over half an ELA. What we found this year is an increase in the number of teachers regularly using these standards aligned materials, which when we look for about once a week is about a quarter of ELA educators and about 40% of math educators. But if we go to a higher level, right, which is using it about half the time, just a majority of instruction, only 14% of ELA teachers are using a standards aligned core curriculum yeah. a majority of the time in their classroom and about a third of math. So a long way to go, even though those numbers are better. Do, do we know how those break down in terms of grade level? I mean, is it? We find that at the high school level, least likely to embrace a core curriculum. Yeah. Yeah. You might expect this, right, in terms of ELA and uh, ELA educators love of their own novels and individual books. So yeah. less likely to be using a curriculum in the later grades than in the earlier grades. And we see the difference, not surprisingly, with ELA mm -hmm. versus math, where teachers maybe with their own knowledge really hanging to the yeah. scope and sequence coherence within a core math. 
And I have to say, I mean, I, I don't have as much of a problem with that. I just feel personally so confused about what kids should be doing in high school. And, you know, this notion that we really need all kids trying to do the same thing. And I certainly want kids reading novels in high school. And so, you know, it kills me when you hear these stories about some, some curricula that have them read only parts of the novels and, and craziness like that. But it's good that we're making some progress in the elementary grades towards these high quality materials. But again, sounds like a long way to go. You know, uh, Tom Lovelace is out with a new book and he's been writing about it, arguing that the Common Core standards failed because standards always fail because, you know, there's too much distance between standards in the classroom, which I think we'd mostly agree with, right? We, we agree in that the way you bridge that difference is with high quality curriculum. And that's why this is still such a work in progress. Until we get many more teachers using these materials, we're going to see disappointing results. What's your sense, Eric? I mean, we're making progress, so that's that's good. But why is it so slow? What is keeping people from using these materials? I think that's the key and why I started with newer materials, more of the stuff we're reviewing, we find are meeting our alignment criteria. So this whole notion that EdReport started with six years ago when we did not find close to that number of aligned materials is sending a strong signal and giving evidence and information to empower local districts to make great decisions about materials gets them to pick more standards aligned and quality pieces, but actually getting teachers to be part of the adoption process, to understand why these materials were selected and then actually start to utilize them and change practice mm -hmm. is one of the real challenges. So it's not just that materials are going to be the you know mythical silver bullet or panacea. Yeah. So much of it is about real strong implementation and aligning professional learning, not just generically, but to that curriculum and the content it's doing in real meaningful ways to really get teachers to utilize it well. And utilizing it well is not scripting every day, every page. I think that's some of the pushback on okay. curriculum, which is why we often talk about materials. It's really implementing with integrity. It's giving educators what they need and those ingredients to make sure we're building knowledge, to make sure there's coherence across those math concepts. But that requires educator support, as well as the materials. So what I'm hearing you say is that, again, we're seeing progress. And part of the progress is because publishers, I assume, are coming out with better materials, right? They're responding to your reviews and they want to get those all greens. And so their, their newer stuff is, is better. So that's great. Uh, that, that's huge. By the way, it reminds me of the reading first days 20 years ago when there was a big push to get the publishers to get on board with phonics and phonemic awareness and the other aspects of scientifically based reading instruction. And many of the big publishers made real progress. Their stuff got better. And that's important because they still got these very powerful sales and marketing forces out there selling their stuff. And so one strategy is to compete with them and to dislodge them. Another one is to get them to put out better stuff. And it sounds like both of that's happening now, but that what teachers might think that some of these materials are too scripted or they might like some of the stuff that is bright and colorful or has better technology stuff rather than maybe saying, hey, we really need the important but boring stuff to be right. That was a leading question. Is that a question, Mike? It felt that like that was a leading David. question. Go ahead, David. 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 I, don't, Eric, I don't make Eric answer that. Eric, can oh, I, I'm happy to can jump in, but go ahead, David. Can I ask an actual question? So what is the criteria that is getting failed here? I want to understand what we're actually talking about. Is it that teachers are not teaching on grade level? Or is this about not feeling like the kids can do the work primarily? Or is it about I don't want you telling me what to teach? And I'm just gonna, you know, that's part of my job as a teacher is the creativity of it. I mean, if you had to pick a single through line here. There are a lot of through lines here. Okay. The first piece is really making sure 
educators understand where the curriculum came from, why it was selected, what it has in it, and making sure they have the supports to actually implement it and utilize it well. When strong curriculum, and for us, that is, it has all of the right standards in the right doses at the right time, and the kinds of supports that allow teachers to really implement it well with kids and meet them where they are. So when we do that and we implement it, teachers are like, oh my gosh, I don't have to spend seven to 12 hours hunting around Pinterest, Google teachers paid teachers, and y'all in the curriculum bazaar did so much work where you showed, even if you do go there, it's not curated. 96% of lessons don't have sufficient support to reach diverse learners. And only about, gosh, I think a third of the lessons were even aligned to the standards they were reported to. So the curriculum is a great place to start. Are we sending the right messages about curriculum? And that comes with, are we helping to implement and having ongoing learning and support, which is about teaching the content with those materials? The challenge is without those, what do teachers again, do one is they go and hunt for these other things. And oftentimes, despite the best of intentions, we really saw in the opportunity myth that they're hitting below grade level in terms of what they're selecting, and it'll have a real impact on kids. And think even more so now as we're looking at not just looking at grade level standards, but accelerating kids and really working on unfinished learning. So let's talk about that, Eric. You know, a lot of people have noted that a pandemic like this can be an accelerant for changes that maybe were already happening, but we're going to take a lot longer. And we've all seen this. Uh, Suddenly, uh, we got a lot more comfortable with things like Zoom. So is there any signs that that the pandemic accelerated the adoption and implementation of high quality materials? You know, maybe because people figured out that, wow, it's really hard to do, you know, remote learning and hybrid learning and in-person learning, uh, you know, in the same school if you don't have a common curriculum. Is that happening? That's our hope. I think um, there's a lot more data to be gathered. I think there was just so much for educators, for parents, yeah. um, for students in the pandemic in terms of adjusting to remote and now hybrid and even coming back to face-to-face learning, yep. that understanding how much curriculum was utilized, even if it was designed to be able to work well digitally mm-hmm. and remotely, I think remains to be seen. I think as we think about accelerating and all of the work to be done, so many of the strategies under discussion, which are going to be needed to meet this huge challenge, really require strong core content, getting that content right. So if it's high dosage tutoring, if it's after school, regardless, we're going to be needing materials that keep kids on grade level. And we're going to have to really attend to the other needs of kids, right? It needs to be engaging, affirming, meaningful, which back to your question, David, is part of the reason, right? Why a teacher may say, I need to supplement. These readings aren't right, or my kids are in this place. But again, ideally drawing upon core material with the right doses of standards and not ditching the grade learning. That's going to be the key. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we talked about this last week, you know, this big resource we've put out at Fordham, the Acceleration Imperative, this model plan for recovery. We've mentioned curriculum a million times. We, we name check ed reports a ton. But, you know, look, if you're going to stand up a summer program this summer, for example, that's great. What are you going to teach? It would be great if you've got high quality instructional material. <laughs> And who's going to teach it? And have they been trained on it? And, you know, are you going forward or are you going back? I mean, really complicated 
question. I do want to ask you one thing, which is, I will admit, a little sensitive, but there are some people out there who worry that the fact that there are more and more of these materials getting greens from Ed reports uh, is because somehow the bar has been lowered, you know, that you're not being as rigorous as you were a few years ago. Can you address that concern? Um, I used to be taller. I can show you the stars. <laughs> There's lots of data and evidence to bring to bear. We're not changing our criteria. Publishers are changing to meet the marketplace. Yeah. So we actually have gone through and documented 68 series looking at elementary, middle, and high school across 35 publishers that different versions have done better on our criteria as they do more and more. And as districts demand or state demands, that there is some independent review like an ed reports Mm -hmm. around it. I think the things we're reflecting on now is our definition of high quality material enough. So it's not that we're lowering the bar. I think the question is, how can we expand our definition of high quality materials Mm -hmm. and continue to hold that bar and think about ways to raise it in meaningful ways? So for example, We're really thinking about not just college and career readiness and the standards, but notions of cultural responsiveness. Are these materials really engaging, affirming, meaningful to kids, but not losing these notions of building knowledge, coherence in the material? It's an and, it's not an or. It's all important. So we, we, we are not lowering the bar. The question is, do we need more bars? We've been encouraging local conversations when we talk about our reports and saying Ed Reports is a great place to start. And there's still a lot more for us to do, not just in terms of teachers using, but still making sure that definition of high quality meets really sound research. And we're thinking more and more. That's great. And, and look, this is certainly an area where continuous improvement is the name of the game, right? And, and the extent that we can, first of all, just get from where we used to be, which in too many cases was bad, mediocre, terrible. Now we're at good, very good, and we want to keep striving towards great. And so that's fantastic that you're helping us do that. Hey, Eric, it's been great having you on the show. We really appreciate it. Again, Eric Hurst, the founding executive director of Ed Reports. Check out their stuff at edreports.org. And I do hope you will come back on the show sometime soon. Anytime. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, David. All right. Thanks so much, Eric. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. Amber, I have a bone to pick with you. Uh-oh. Your Virginia Cavaliers, I had them in the final four, oh. and they just were terrible. What happened? Oh, man, I know, I know. I, I just don't know what happened to their run. I think because they'd lost some really excellent players <laughs> from a couple years ago who were seniors. I guess. Well, thanks a lot. But I will say I'm mostly in mourning this week for my beloved Michigan Wolverines who had a pretty good run but could not beat UCLA uh, in the Elite Eight. It was a real defensive duel. I stayed up way too late watching that game. But hey, we're going to be back. It was great. Juwan Howard as coach, he was one of the Fab Five. I'm the same age as those guys, so it brings back a lot of great memories. And Jalen Rose, another one of the Fab Five, in the stands watching with his Jalen Rose Leadership Academy Charter School sweatshirt. Nice. Wow. Gotta love that. Go Blue. I know. I feel the same way about my UVA boys. They're going to come back. Hope springs eternal. There we go. Yes. One of my favorite trailblazers, Juwan Howard. Okay. There you go. See, we agree. We agree. All right. Amber, what you got for us this week? Uh, We got a new study. It's a uh, reports on the results of a randomized experiment. We love these intended to curb truancy. 
Uh, it's conducted in a very large urban district. It randomly assigned over 152,000 truant students to receive either a standard notice that the state law mandates that you got to send to kids who are truant or one of six modified versions of the notice that seeks to address four known barriers to parental engagement. I'll tell you about those in a second. What we need to keep in mind is how truancy is defined. And here it's being tardy or absent on three separate occasions for more than 30 minutes without a valid excuse. So it's a little different definition. So why, that makes sense of why there's, uh, there's 150,000. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a little lower bar. Was this one of our studies, Amber? It sounds like something we'd find. <laughs> In order to comply with the mandate, the district sends truancy notifications via email once per month. The standard notice informs the parents that their child is truant. It highlights the legal consequences of unexcused absences hmm. and lets the parent or child know that they may be subject to prosecution according to Article 6, Section 58290 and the whole spiel, okay? It's 382 words. It's written at a 10th grade reading level and it includes seven bullets of legally mandated language. Can you imagine how excited parents are to get this thing? Uh-huh. The modified notices, because there's six of them, address various parental involvement barriers, like I mentioned, including the barriers are low literacy, limited attention, a perceived lack of efficacy, meaning feeling like what they do doesn't matter anyway, and the belief that a small number of absences is inconsequential. So those are the things they're trying to tackle in the modified notices. Each modified notice was written at a fifth grade level. It contains less than 150 words. And one of them begins with, just give you guys a little flavor for how this one differs from the mandated one, the original rather. We need your help. Little Johnny, insert child name. Absences from school are concerning. Your partnership is critical. Students who miss just one or two days of school each month can fall seriously behind. And then it gives some examples of what could happen. They could drop out of school, so on and so forth. The primary outcome is the total number of absences accumulated between each truancy notification emailing. And they examined three rounds in 2015-2016 from November, December, December to January, January to February. They estimate the average treatment effect of assignment to each condition on both full day and partial day absences. They do look at partial day as well. All models control for student level demographics, school level type, randomization cohort, grade level, and they've got some measure of pre-treatment truancy count, among some other things. They find the key finding that the three notices that emphasize parental efficacy and highlight the negative incremental effects of absences were the most effective. And they call them the cumulative condition because they seek to address more than one barrier. Each of them reduced absences by about 2% in the month after receiving the notice or by approximately 0.07 days compared to the standard notice. Approximately 70% of the total effect of the modified notices though, accrued in the first 10 days of school following each emailing. So basically uh, receiving one of these modified notices reduced absences in the first 10 days by an average of 1.9% or 0.05 days. So basically they say that seems like the effect wanes pretty quickly, right? Since it's, it's, a, it's really happening in those first 10 days. The impact among high school students is larger than for elementary or middle school students. And then they have a discussion at the end. They say, this is not a huge impact. It kind of equates to about 0.02 standard deviation between these truancy mailings. And they say, you know, it's, it's a pretty small effect 
but it should also be seen in the light of the intensity and cost of the intervention. And they say that, you know, they've already got to email these things anyway, according to state law. And so the cost and effort is really negligible in their opinion. And that's what I've got. Okay. So just to be clear, the notices were were mailed or emailed? Emailed. Yeah. They kept saying mailings in the, in the study, but I went back and it definitely said they were emailed, even though they kept using the word mailed. Okay. I guess I'm curious to know right off the bat, how many of these families have access to email, but that's obviously, I mean, from a cost standpoint, that's incredibly low cost, right? I mean, do they give a cost estimate for each? No. I mean, it's got to be nothing, essentially. Right. That's what they said. It's, there's really no cost and the same amount of effort because they're already having to send one anyway. Yeah. I mean, so of course, this just seems like common sense and uh, glad that this district is doing it. Don't we hope that every district is doing this? I mean, <laughs> like, this just feels like it's what organizations do now, right? They try to improve their communication. They do A, B tests. They, you know, try to track, use data. I mean, they've got, you know, an accountability incentive to drive down chronic absenteeism rates, the right thing to do anyways. And in some places, there's even a financial incentive if if they get paid based on the number of kids at school. Come on, people. I was a little confused because, you know, the standard one supposedly has legally mandated language. It has to have it in there. You know, that's why all the article section, blah, blah, blah. I mean, the standard one is is pretty tough. So I don't know whether the researchers had to get special you know, permission to send this nicer truancy right. letter. <laughs> right, right. And and permission from whom? Was that a state law? Is right. Well, they said that? it was a state law. Yes, yeah. it was It was state a state mandate. So I'm assuming it was a state law. Mm-hmm. I don't know if other states have similar barriers to the types of notices they have to send to families about yeah, truancy. That's interesting. They should also do a test where they send two different emails to the State Department of Education, one in which they declare that they're just going to do this and not asking for permission, and the other one asking for permission before they do it and see which one gets responded to first. <laughs> right. I mean, in other words, this is ridiculous, people. Just do it. Um, so, uh, But it's good. These things matter. It's reminded me of some of the work Tim Daly's done, right, about how you communicate yep. about report cards to parents. And in other words, like the efficacy point of like, you can do something about this. We need your help. Mm-hmm that sort of thing. It, it was very much in line with what they were doing on our report card communications. So just to be clear, the takeaway was that it's the efficacy not as opposed to legal threats. Basically, that's what the standard one emphasized was a lot of legalese where the other ones were parent efficacy and, and highlighting the negative incremental effects of absences. Like it's a big deal. It's not like, eh, they're only missing a few. Yeah. Well, I guess that's comforting, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And of course, you know, here we are in a time when, you know, most of the country is truant and absent, uh, so to speak. We have to rethink how all of this works in in a world where kids may be learning remotely as a matter of course. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. What do you think the odds are that parents are getting these emails right now, Mike, for, for kids who have not even logged in? Right. I think at the very least, they need to be text messages and not emails, right? Right. Um, because, yeah, there's a million reasons why the parents are not seeing the emails. I will say uh, the other challenge is too many emails, as I can tell you from being a public school parent, between the PTA and the school and the district. And whew, we get a lot of emails. Wow, and I see. Mm. I get a sense uh, from anecdotal evidence that I'm the only one in the county that actually reads them. yeah i guess i'm also just curious about the counterfactual here not to nerd out too much right but like what else are they doing we were ostensibly supposed to call our parents every time a kid was absent at my school Uh, i won't comment on that 
on whether that actually happened and it's yeah. a teacher school day, right? I mean, every kid in every period and we're supposed to call them between 3.15 and five, you know, it was right. nuts. No, Nobody did. No. I said it out loud. Nobody did it, right? <laughs> um, and I thought it was crazy that it wasn't automated and, uh, you know, automatic or that there wasn't somebody whose job it was to do it. Mm -hmm. um, right. I just wonder how much of this is, is literally just a function of good management. <laughs> yeah. And look, there, obviously there are companies out there that will sell services to school systems that will send automated text messages when the kid's not there. So, and it sounds like it's probably worth the cost. And then, you know, the other, a lot of the CMOs, right, have school culture officers or whatever they call mm. them. And their job is honestly to go knocking on doors when kids yeah. are not showing up several days in a row. So yeah, again, it, it takes some people to actually kind of handle this and, and take it seriously and try to address it. Okay, well, let's leave it there because that is all the time that we've got for this week. So until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.